0: My sergeant had his head clean, carried off by a round shot. Yet for about 30 yards further, the headless body kept in the saddle, the lance of the charge
1: fairly gripped under the... On the morning of the 21st of September 1854, the Crimean War looked set to be the short, sharp shock to Russia and the Tsar the Allies had wanted. After a crushing victory at the Battle of Alma, The port of Sevastopol lay open to the French and British armies. A swift march and the 60,000-strong force would be able to overpower the 5,000 Russian soldiers and 10,000 ill-prepared sailors cowering behind paltry defences. Yet a month later, Trooper Whiteman of the 17th Lancers was riding alongside his headless sergeant as he galloped through hell on earth with the Light Brigade. A month of bungling, poor decision-making and catastrophic leadership that shocked Britain to the core, and was, in due course, to bring about the downfall of the government. The initial mistake belonged to the French. After victory at Alma, and with the Russians in disarray, the British were keen to press on, to send Trooper Whiteman, the Lancers and the rest of the Light Brigade hurrying up the open road to Sevastopol. There is practically nothing to stop the enemy from walking into the city wrote one of its defenders. The Allies failed to realise the extent of the Russian collapse, and the French were not ready for a quick march. They had less cavalry than the British. The indecision that dogged the entire campaign was evident again. The Allies changed their plan. Instead of going hell for leather for the main prize, Sevastopol, Lord Raglan and Marshal Saint-Arnaud, the Allied commanders, decided to encircle the port and attack it from the north, where they believed the defences were weaker. Local Tatar spies, most Tatars had no love for Russia, played a part in convincing the Allied General Staff that the city was better defended than in reality. It's not clear whether the spies were mistaken or were indeed trying to double-cross the Allies. But nevertheless, when the truth was discovered, the spies were shot. By then, it was too late to correct their mistake. They were committed to plan B,
2: a siege. This
1: is Wars That Shaped the World. At midday on 26 September, Lord Raglan rode into the small port of Balaclava. Residents came out to greet the British cavalry bearing trays of fruit and flowers, as well as bread and salt, the traditional sign of submission. The French took the harbour of Camièche, meaning each army had somewhere for supplies to land. Progress was slow and steady, but the French had a more pressing problem. For their mortally ill commander, Marshal Saint-Arnaud, time was all but up.
3: Marshal Saint-Arnaud was brought into town this afternoon in a very weak state. He is to embark for France immediately, but he's so ill that his medical attendants doubt his living to see it again.
1: He was replaced as commander-in-chief by Francois Canrobert, a general soon to become known to the British as Robert Kant. As the Allies spread out to encircle Sevastopol, advancing along the Inkerman Heights, the British caught up with the Russian rearguard. Captain Louis Nolan, an ambitious cavalryman on Raglan's staff, saw this as the moment he'd been waiting for. Nolan was a student of cavalry tactics, an enthusiastic student, and this, he believed, was the perfect chance to unleash the Light Brigade. He pushed for an attack, but Lord Lucan, the cavalry commander, called it off. Nolan was furious, and the decision was noticed by William Russell, the Times correspondent and meticulous chronicler of the war.
4: The cavalry have not done as much as expected of them, and at the Alma they were quite inactive.
1: With the Allied commanders deciding a siege of Sevastopol was now the best option, The cavalry seemed set to be pushed even further out of the picture. Within their ranks, the junior officers and men were not happy. They had a lofty reputation to uphold, and with each day that passed, they were being denigrated. As the French and British began to dig in on the heights around the city, and embark on the Herculean task of hauling their great guns up the hills, the Russians were making the most of the lull. Their panic had been checked, and the defences of Sevastopol were quickly improved. With a population of 40,000, the port had only been in existence for some 70 years. It was a military settlement. Everything was focused on looking after the fleet and its sailors. As the defences were thrown up, Admiral Kornilov rode around the perimeter encouraging his men. One such encounter was recorded by Leo Tolstoy, now a battery commander within one of the strongholds that made up the key points of the port's defences.
2: If you must die, lads, will you die? Shouted Kornilov, back came the response. We will die, Your Excellency! Hooray!
1: The Russians were at first so short of supplies. A detachment was sent to Odessa to fetch 400 shovels, to enable them just to properly dig the required defences. Yet they were given crucial time by the Allies taking 18 days, to assemble their artillery around the port. With the supply lines still open to the north, the Russians rushed in reinforcements. Finally, on the 17th of October, 72 British and 53 French guns opened fire. Canrobert and Raglan estimated the Russians would hold out for 48 hours at best. The general staff settled back to wait for the inevitable. Thick black smoke hung over battlefield and city.
2: I never saw or heard of anything like it before. For 12 hours, the wild howling of the bombs was unbroken. It was impossible to distinguish between them, and the ground shook beneath our feet. A thick smoke filled the sky and bloated out the sun. It became as dark as night. Even the rooms were filled with smoke.
1: Admiral Kornilov, one of the rare admired commanders, was himself killed, a shell blowing away the lower part of his body. Lower down the ranks, the defenders were torn between their duty and their loved ones.
2: I've caught myself between two feelings. One half of me wanted to run home to save my family, but my sense of duty told me I should stay. My feelings as a man got the better of the soldier within me, and I ran away to find my family.
1: There were over a thousand Russian casualties on the first day, but they held out and took heart from defiance. Up on the heights, all was far from well in the British ranks. Supply problems were beginning to bite, illness and disease already chewing up the ranks. Attention once again focused on the light brigade, one of whose key jobs in a campaign was to forage for supplies.
4: The light cavalry is utterly useless in gathering supplies. There are those that say they are too fine gentlemen for their work.
1: That workload was about to get serious. Out of the blue, on the 25th of October, the Russians attacked with 60,000 men, and 34 squadrons of cavalry, a force equal to the entire Allied army. Prince Menshikov, the Russian commander, planned to break through to Balaclava and cut the British off from the sea, and therefore their supplies. The battle began with an assault on six redoubts the British had established on the key Causeway Heights. British forces were already thinly stretched, so the redoubts were manned by Turkish troops, raw soldiers who'd been poorly supplied by the British. Many hadn't eaten for two days. Down in the South Valley, only the 93rd Highlanders under the astute command of Sir Colin Campbell stood directly between the Russians and Balaclava. On their flank was Lucan's cavalry, the heavy and light brigades. It's above were 1,000 marines, making a scattered total of around 5,000 defending the port. Raglan had been warned by a deserter the attack was coming. There'd been previous warnings of attacks that hadn't materialized, so he decided to ignore it. Menshikov's assault took the British by surprise. For the first hour, the Turks and the Redoubts held out, despite being outnumbered two to one. But finally, they broke and fled, allowing the Russians to take three British cannon, a key moment for what was to come.
0: To our intense disgust, in a few moments we saw a little stream of men issue from the rear of the redoubt and run down the hillside towards our lines. These were immediately followed by a regular crowd of fugitives, thus in a few moments we lost, through the confounded cowardice of the Turks, the key of our advanced line of defence. Many were the curses loud and deep that were heaped on their devoted heads.
1: The Turks fled towards Balaclava, charging straight through the camp of the 93rd's wives. One panicked man was witnessed being thumped to the ground by a furious Highland wife after running across washing she'd laid out to dry. Back on the field of battle, the Russians now held four redoubts and were in control of the heights, clearing the way for the cavalry to attack Campbell's men, the only troops directly between them and Balaclava. The usual tactic of the time for infantry when faced by cavalry was to form a square or mass ranks, a move little changed from Waterloo 39 years earlier. But Sir Colin Campbell appreciated the power of the Minia rifle, and instead strung his men out in a line just too deep. 400 Russian cavalrymen, having been blessed by a priest and reportedly given three times their usual ration of vodka, swung round to make the attack.
3: yells of these wild horsemen, the Cossacks of the Don could be distinctly heard where we were as they galloped on the Highlanders. The British soldier, however, only laughed at their yells.
1: Up on the Sapoon Heights, Raglan, his staff, William Russell and other spectators, including military wives and even war tourists, looked on. It was like Russell was to write. They were looking on the stage from the boxes of a theatre. Among the onlookers was Fanny Dubeley, whose husband Henry was in the Light Brigade.
2: Presently came the Russian cavalry, charging over the hillside and across the valley, right against the little line of Highlanders. Ah, what a moment! Charging and surging onward, what could that little wall of men do against such numbers and such speed? There they stood.
1: Sir Colin Campbell had a firm idea of what his men could do. Campbell was one of the great soldiers of the age. His military career had begun under Wellington in the Peninsular War, and he was to retire a field marshal. The stern Glaswegian rode among the thin ranks of the 93rd, demanding they stand firm, and if necessary, they should die there. He looked, said one officer in their ranks, like he meant it. It was Russell who first coined the phrase the 93rd were to become famous for.
4: The Russians drew breath for a moment, and then in one grand line dashed at the Highlanders. The ground flies beneath their horses' feet, gathering speed at every stride. They dash on towards that thin red streak topped with a line of steel. With breathless suspense, everyone awaits the bursting of the wave upon the line of Gaelic rock. But ere they come within 150 yards, a deadly volley flashes from the leveled rifle and carries death and terror into the Russians. They wheel about and fly back faster than they came. Bravo, Highlanders! Well done! Shout the excited spectators. But events thicken. The Highlanders and their splendid front are soon forgotten.
1: It took three volleys for the thin red line, as they were to become known in the history books, to repel the Russians. As Russell recorded, no sooner had they done so than attention switched elsewhere. This was a fast-moving battle. For once, Raglan took a swift and decisive decision. The remainder of the Russian cavalry, some 2,000 strong, were wheeling to launch another attack on the Highlanders. Raglan ordered the heavy brigade to counterattack at once. 700 heavy brigade horsemen crashed into the Russians and checked their charge. The fighting was close quarters, the cavalrymen struggling even to wield their swords. At such close range and without the full force of a swing, the Russians were well protected by their thick coats, while the British were on higher, heavier horses, so that in turn gave them some protection. There were no more than 20 casualties on each side, but the impact of the British charge was enough to break the Russians, and after 10 minutes, they turned and retreated. The heavy brigade gave chase, but at once came under fire from artillery on the captured Causeway Heights, and checked their advance. Events were moving at high speed, French and British reinforcements had rushed to the Highlanders, and so Balaclava was now safe. Seeing this, the Russians began to retire, taking with them a handful of captured British guns from the redoubts. From the Sapoon Heights, Raglan caught sight of this. For a man who'd served with Wellington and now followed in his boots to command a British army on campaign, this was unthinkable. One of the legends that swirled around Wellington was that he'd never lost a gun in all his campaigns. Raglan couldn't bear the thought that he was about to lose guns on his first command. Thoughts of his honour, brushing aside his usual dithering, he dispatched orders for Lord Lucan to send his cavalry and retake the heights and the guns. Raglan promised infantry support, as would be necessary and usual for such an attack. Lucan, at the west end of the heights, saw no sign of any infantry, so for 45 minutes he did nothing. The cavalry sat in the saddle waiting. Raglan watched the guns edging out of reach, and what he perceived to be his honour and reputation going with them. He called over Captain Nolan, the cavalry enthusiast and best horseman on his staff. Raglan dictated another order. It was to become one of the most controversial in British military history.
0: Lord Raglan wishes the cavalry to advance rapidly to the front. Follow the enemy and try to prevent the enemy carrying away the guns. Troop horse artillery may accompany. French cavalry is on your left. Immediate.
1: Nolan galloped off to find Lucan. There was already widespread irritation at what the Light Brigade had, or rather hadn't done that morning, both without and within its ranks. One Light Brigade officer had slapped his sword against his leg, a clear sign of disrespect when their commander, Lord Cardigan, prevented them from supporting the heavy brigade's charge. Several troopers stood up in the saddle and yelled,
3: Why are we kept here?
1: Nolan too thought the brigade hadn't done its bit. All the earlier criticisms of the Light Brigade bubbled beneath the surface. But Lucan was baffled. He could see the captured guns more guns to his left up the North Valley where he knew the main Russian force was, and yet more guns further left on the Fedyukan Heights. Which guns was he supposed to go for? He turned to an impatient Nolan. The captain was later to be described as disrespectful by Lucan.
0: Where are we to advance to? There are the enemy and there are the guns, sir. Before them it is your duty to take them.
1: As he spoke, Nolan flung an arm out, and we have only Lucan's word for this exchange, and pointed not towards the captured British guns on Causeway Heights, but rather the Russian batteries in front of the massed ranks of Cossacks up the North Valley. Either side of which were more guns and infantry. Lucan followed Nolan's instructions. He ordered Cardigan to take his light brigade up the valley. Cardigan queried the order, said it was madness. Cardigan and Lucan were barely on speaking terms. Lucan was married to one of Cardigan's sisters, and he believed Lucan mistreated her. The two lords despised each other. Lucan, perhaps fearing for his reputation, perhaps fearing for his control over men desperate for action, demanded Cardigan follow orders. Cardigan had no choice. A cavalry engagement begins at a walk. 661 officers and troopers headed towards the North Valley, cardigan in the front line with the 13th Light Dragoons and the 17th Lancers. Behind them came the 11th Hussars and the 4th Light Dragoons. It was two kilometers to the end of the valley, a distance that would take around seven minutes for charging cavalry to cover. The first line had just moved into a trot when Captain Nolan, Riding among them, burst forward waving his sword. Was he encouraging his beloved light brigade on? Relieved at last they were going to see action and show the army what they could do? Or had Nolan realized his mistake in sending the brigade in the wrong direction? And was he frantically trying to redirect them? There was no time to find out. The first shell fired by the Russians struck Nolan a fatal blow. He fell from his horse. Captain Louis Nolan would not live to tell his tale. The rest of the front line began to gallop earlier than they were supposed to. A voice cried out from the front line, come on, don't let those bastards get ahead of us. The eager trooper met the 17th Lancers in the second line. The light brigade were champing at the bit to get into the war, and within moments, they were deep in it, gathering into a withering crossfire of cannons and muskets. Sergeant Bond of the 11th Hussars was in the second line.
0: The reports from the guns and the bursting of shells were deafening. The smoke was almost blinding. Horses and men were falling in every direction, and the horses that were not hurt were so upset we could not keep them in a straight line for a time. A man named Allred, who was riding on my left, fell from his horse like a stone looked back and saw the poor fellow lying on his back, his right temple being cut away and his brain partly on the ground.
1: Bond and the second line had to swerve to avoid the bodies of fallen troopers and terrified horses. We were riding into the mouth of a volcano, said one trooper. But still the light brigade went on, and within seven minutes the first line reached the guns cardigan was said to be the first there. The sabers flashed in the sunlight as they took revenge on the gunners and swept past them into the Cossacks. The light brigade were outnumbered 5 to 1, but the Cossacks panicked, as if unable to believe their foe had ridden through hell and come out the other side. The Cossacks opened fire on their own side, spreading further panic through the Russian forces who turned and fled for the Chenaya River. What was left of the light brigade in hot pursuit. From the heights, the other Russian gunners looked on in disbelief. Stepan Kozhukov was one of their officers.
2: Four Hussar and Cossack regiments all crumbed together and inside this mess one could make out the red tunics of the English, probably no less surprised than ourselves how unexpectedly this had happened. The enemies soon came to the conclusion they had nothing to fear from the panic-stricken Hussars and Cossacks and tired of slashing decided to return the way they had come, through another cannonade of artillery and rifle fire. It is difficult, if not impossible, to do justice to the feet of this mad cavalry. Having lost at least a quarter of their number during the attack, and being apparently impervious to new dangers and losses, They quickly reformed their squadrons to return over the same ground, littered with their dead and dying. With desperate courage, these valiant lunatics set off again and it took a long time for the Hussars and Cossacks to collect themselves. They were convinced the entire enemy cavalry were pursuing them and angrily did not want to believe they had been crushed by a relatively insignificant handful of daredevils.
1: As the Light Brigade dashed back towards the British lines, the Polish Lancers were ordered to charge down from the causeway heights and cut off their retreat. Fresh troops in such a large number, with the advantage of coming downhill at a weary enemy, should have spelt the end of the Light Brigade. But the Poles made only a token attack on the Brigade's outriders. Like the Cossacks, the Poles also seemed scared to attack men possessed by such mad courage. If the Light Brigade could charge the guns and survive, who stood any chance against them? Of the 661 men of the Light Brigade, 113 were killed, 134 wounded and 45 taken prisoner. In addition, more than 360 horses were killed in three quarters of an hour. It was not the end of the battle. French cavalry and infantry were efficiently recapturing the redoubts on the Causeway Heights, as the British should have done some hours earlier. That took most of the rest of the day. The Allies were happy to have kept Balaclava, and with fresh French troops strengthening the line, the Russians were not ready to risk another attack. So by five o'clock, the Battle of Balaclava was over. The Russians claimed a great victory and paraded the captured British guns through Sevastopol. From up on the heights, the British could see the parade. It was no victory. The Russians tried to attack again the following day with 5,000 men, but were beaten off by half that number from De Lacey Evans' second division. Volley after volley of minier rifle fire drove the Russians back with 500 casualties. British losses were 70. Balaclava had changed nothing for the Russians. But what of the British? There were questions of Cardigan's role in the Light Brigade's retreat. Some claim he turned and galloped away on his own. In other words, a commander fleeing the field ahead of his men. This was not done. Cardigan hotly denied it, and after the war, even took to the courts in a series of high-profile cases in an attempt to clear his name. He said it was beneath him to fight Russian gunners and common soldiers. He'd done his job in charging the guns. That evening, Cardigan returned to his private yacht in Balaclava Bay and mulled over the day's events with the help of a champagne dinner. Back up on the heights, among the tents and trenches, William Russell was writing the report that would help frame an imperial legend, but also with bodies piling up day after day questioned the progress of the war, and the very men who were running it.
4: All our operations in the trenches were lost sight of in the interest of this melancholy day in which our light brigade was annihilated by their own rashness and by the brutality of a ferocious enemy.
1: Russell at first wrote that only 200 light brigade men returned from the valley of death. Other papers had even fewer making it back. It was Russell's words, fresh from the battlefield in a manner never seen before that hit home with the public up and down Britain. The charge of the Light Brigade became a legendary story of courage, tragedy, and blunder. Within two months, Tennyson was writing his famous poem.
0: Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. All in the Valley of Death rode the 600. Forward the Light Brigade, charge of the guns, he said. Into the Valley of Death rode the 600. Forward the Light Brigade, Was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew someone had blundered. There's not to make reply. There's not to reason why. There's but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600.
1: Here was the poet laureate himself echoing Russell's words and stating that someone high up had blundered, leaving the common soldier to do and die. For the first time, the commanders, Britain's aristocratic generals, were held up to the light, and the public did not like what they were being shown. In Downing Street, Lord Aberdeen and his ministers shifted uncomfortably in their cabinet seats. This war was not going according to plan.
4: We make very little way, and it is evident that this cannot last. The men are worn out. We must have more men.
1: Out in the Crimea, casualties were mounting. The temperature was beginning to drop, the nights getting colder. The Russian winter was coming. Next on Wars That Shaped the
2: World.
3: Directly, we saw their heads above the parapet we fired at them or bayoneted them as fast as we could. It came on like ants. No sooner was one knocked backwards and another clambered over the dead bodies to take his place, all yelling and shouting. We were not quiet, you may be sure. And what with the cheering, shouting, the thud of blows, the clash of bayonets and swords, the ping of the bullets, the whistling of the shells, the foggy atmosphere and the smell of powder and blood. The scene inside the battery where we were was beyond the power of man to imagine or describe.
1: Wars That Shaped the World is a Goalhanger Podcasts production. It was produced by Holy Smokes. This series was written by Robin Scott Elliott and narrated by Paul Waggett.
2: Holy Smokes.